As you know, uh, on Wednesdays, we are looking at what we've called core Christianity. We're looking at basically what do we believe and why when it comes to uh, the, the basic Christian doctrines. Uh, what is at the very heart of what it means to have Christian faith. And this evening, I want to, um, I want to make the argument that the entire Bible actually tells one story. Now, the reason I say it that way is um, I'm not sure many of us look at the Bible that way, especially the Old Testament. I think most of us grew up, um, if we grew up in church at all, we grew up hearing uh, stories of the Old Testament heroes. Uh, you'd go to Sunday school and you'd hear about David, and then the next week you'd go and you'd hear about Abraham, and the next week you'd go and you'd hear about uh, Jonah, and, um, and, and we got bits and pieces. For many people, the Old Testament is kind of like a jigsaw puzzle um, that you're supposed to put together without ever seeing the picture. You know, when you buy a jigsaw puzzle, the picture's on the box, so you know what you're buying. But think about buying a, a plain brown box with pieces in it, and you're supposed to figure out how to put it together. I think that's the way the Old Testament comes across to a lot of folks. We know the pieces, but just don't really know how they fit together. So what I gave you, a little handout, I actually made this handout for one of our teenagers, believe it or not. Um, one of our students... Um, about a year ago was uh, leading uh, his own little Bible study at the high school. And they wanted to, to understand how the Old Testament, uh, how to understand the Old Testament in a, in a better way. And so I sat down and put this together for them, um, but I uh, thought I'd go ahead and share it with you as well because it basically tells this, helps us see that there is a story. What I want to show you this evening is the entire Bible is the story of redemption. Now, redemption is a word that we, it's one of those that you'd only use in church. You don't hear it hardly anywhere else. Uh, it, it originally meant to buy it was a word that was used when, when one would uh, buy someone out of slavery in order to set them free. And that has some theological implications. But I think the, the easiest way for us to understand the way the word is used is just to say that redemption is to take something that's messed up and make it right. It takes something that's messed up and it makes it right. Okay? With that in mind, that is the story of human history. The story of uh, humanity is the story of the Bible. It is the story of redemption. One easy way to remember that is the word history. And you've heard this before. This is not new to me. But you could, we could easily say that history is his story. It is God's story. It's the story of redemption. And that story uh, begins, obviously, in Genesis. You know the story of Genesis. God created everything that exists. He then created uh, man. 
He said, uh, man, you can hang out with me all the time and you can do just about whatever you want to do. All except this one little thing. You can, li you can eat anything you want to eat except this one little thing. You can go anywhere you want to go except this one little place. You can do whatever you want to do as long as you leave this one tree alone. So what's the one thing that Adam and Eve did? As soon as you tell somebody don't get on the grass, they got to get on the grass just because. Right? We're all that way. And so Adam and Eve break the one rule they had and... Man falls. Nature falls with man. See, there was a time when even nature was perfect. But when man fell, all of nature fell. That's why we have mosquitoes. That's why we have bananas. <laughs> nature is no longer perfect. All right? So from that moment to the rest, throughout the Bible, to the end of Revelation, we get the story of God redeeming, taking what's messed up and making it right. We could say that the story, that that redemptive story begins in Genesis 3 at 15. If you have your Bible, let's start there, Genesis 3 and 15. After, after the serpent tempts Eve, Eve takes the fruit. She then, we usually say she shared it with Adam. What she actually did was tempt Adam. The serpent tempts Eve. Eve tempts Adam. And Adam and Eve eat the fruit. So God breaks down his... Uh, discussion with each of them in that order. He talks to the serpent, he talks to the woman, and then he talks to Adam. And the reason I said the woman instead of her name is that's the way scripture does in verse 16. But in verse, verses 14 and 15, God is speaking to the serpent after the fall, after uh, they have given in to temptation. And he says in verse 15 to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So from that moment on, people have not liked snakes. Obviously, it's a whole lot more serious than that. He's speaking to Satan. He's speaking to the enemy. And he says from this moment on, man and the enemy will be at odds. The adversary now has become our enemy. And he says, between your offspring and her offspring, just means from now on, those who, those who are on your side are against man. But there is an implication that there's, there's not just man in general, but a specific offspring. And we get that in the last half of the verse. He, referring to Eve's offspring, not just all of her descendants, but he, meaning one. This one particular offspring of Eve, one particular de uh, descendant of Adam and Eve, 
will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we understand that to be a, a, a statement of God's redemptive plan. That even from the beginning, at the very moment of the fall, God knew what was happening. He had a plan, and his plan is introduced in this prophecy. He says that one of Eve's descendants, in other words, a human being, will bruise the head of Satan. Satan will bruise the heel of this human being. Now, the significance of the head and the heel an injury to the heel hurts, but it's probably not fatal. Injury to the head can very likely be fatal. And that was the foreshadowing. Yes, you're going to hurt Jesus. But Jesus is going to end you. He's going to kill you, basically. All right. So God announces his redemptive plan in the very early pages of Genesis. And then you know what happens. Uh, Adam and Eve have kids and they have kids and they have kids and the kids all act up. And so God says, hey, you people are beyond uh, help. You're just so messed up. We're going to start all over. He sends the big flood, washes them away. And let's start over with Noah's family. Noah's family starts having kids, and they start having kids, and they start having kids. And, of course, all those people are sinful, and everything gets messed up again. But God doesn't send a flood this time. Why? Because he made a promise to Noah. After he washed the face of the earth the first time, he said, I'll never do this again. So now, after generations after Noah, we still got messed up people making messed up decisions because we live in a messed up world. We have a world full of people in need of redemption. This time, God handles it differently, and he begins a series of covenants. He first meets with a guy named Abram. Abram is, uh, he's over here, and he's part of the family of moon worshipers. And he says to Abram, you're going to leave your family. You're going to leave your country, your town, everything you know, everybody you know. And you're going to go somewhere, and I'm not even going to tell you where. You're going to start the journey, and then when you prove your faith by starting the journey, I'll take you step by step where we're headed. And if you'll do that, I will create in you a new nation. Your descendants will outnumber the, the stars in the, in the sky. And there is a covenant between God and Abram. Abram, you follow me, and I will create a new nation from you. From this new nation will come redemption. And Abram follows God. He gives birth to uh, Isaac. Isaac gives birth to Israel. And the nation comes from 
the children of Israel, the nation of God from whom will come redemption for all mankind. There is a covenant. Well, Abram gives birth to these children of Israel, one of whom is Joseph. Joseph winds up in Egypt. Terrible famine in the land, awful time. Joseph is able to help everybody. He says, hey, dad and brothers, y'all come to Egypt, hang out with me, and we'll take care of you here. They all go to Egypt, hang out. They hang out so long that the kings change, and now you got bad kings, and the bad kings take those children of Israel and turn them into slaves. They remain in slavery in Egypt for around 400 years. And then Moses. Moses comes on the scene and God speaks to Moses and he says, go set my people free. Moses says, I can't do that. God says, no, you really can't, but I can, so let's get busy. And he takes Moses. Moses goes to Egypt. You remember the story of all the plagues. Moses frees the people and they start on their journey to a land that has been promised to them, a land they have yet to see, but that has been promised to them. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, which simply means that, that it's a land that will, that will be um, flush, that, that will be abundant. You'll be able to, to uh, provide for your families and be very healthy and happy in this new land. And they begin the journey. Along the way, God pulls Moses over and says, let's go up on the hill and let's talk. Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai and we get the second covenant. The first covenant was God and Abram. By that time, and, and Abram, of course, becomes Abraham. But God and Abraham have a covenant. You follow me, I'll make a nation out of you. And that covenant was passed down from generation to generation. We are people who follow God because he's going to use us to bring redemption. Okay? That was the first covenant. The second covenant clarified things a little bit more. The second covenant is Moses on Mount Sinai. And God says, Moses, here's what I need, here's what I demand of my people. Still the same people, still Abraham's kids. Remember that. But now he's clarifying what is expected, and he gives to them the law. Not just the top ten. They get the top ten. But he also gives to them all kinds of laws about how they are to live their lives. It's a new covenant. And this new covenant is summarized, you be my people and I'll be your God. You be my people, live by these rules, and if you live by these rules, they'll prove that you're my people, and I will be your God. Well, almost immediately, they start breaking those rules. and They wander for 40 years because they're griping and complaining because they don't have everything they thought they deserve. Joshua leads them into the land. And by the way, it's interesting to find out that that land didn't belong to Israel, nor did it belong to any of the people who lived there. The land, according to Scripture, belonged to God. 
And that's important because so many people get hung up on why did God run these people off of their land and hurt so many people? No, it, it wasn't their land to begin with. They were godless people who were in a place they didn't belong. The land belonged to God and he gave it to his children. Joshua goes in and they, they settle in the land of promise. And guess what? They're not there too long before people are people and they mess up because they're messed up people who live in a messed up world. And because they're messed up people who live in a messed up world, they start breaking all of those rules. Now, if you're following along in the overall biblical structure, we have just covered the first five books that are traditionally called the Pentateuch. That's just a word that means five, really. It's the first five books of the Bible. And we've gotten into the next book, which is Joshua. Joshua takes over the promised land with, with, with the people of God. But they are rebellious, and they start breaking laws. And so God sends to them a series of judges. These judges are there to remind them of the laws, that they're supposed to be God's people, still in need of redemption. God sends to them a series of judges who will help them understand the importance of keeping God's Laws and what happens when they don't. The last of the judges is Samuel, and you see First and Second Samuel in your scriptures after the book of Judges. The judges tell us when we mess up, they try to help us get right, but this isn't working for us. And they start looking around at the nations around them and they say, You know, all the other nations, they don't have judges, they have kings. We want a king. God says, I am your king. I've been your king from the beginning. I'm the one in charge. You're my people. I'm your God. I'm your king. And they said, yeah, but we can't see you. We want a king we can see. And so God says, okay, fine. I'll send you some kings. And the first king, and then by the way, you get to the books of First and Second Kings. First and Second Chronicles is another way to tell the same stories in First and Second Kings. And he sends to them first the king Saul. Saul is, an, is, is not a good king. He loses, uh, because out of his disobedience, he loses God's blessing, and God instead picks this scrawny little shepherd boy to be king. The scrawny little shepherd boy wipes out Goliath and takes over and is an incredible king, an incredible king who is also full of sin, by the way still in need of redemption. Fallen people still mess up because we live in a messed up world and do messed up things. But it is with David that we get the third major covenant in God's redemptive plan. And God says to David, he said to Abram, I'm going to make you a nation. Through Moses, he spoke to the nation. He said, nation, I'll be your God, you be my people, here's what I expect of you. And now in David he says, I'm going to send one of your descendants who is going to establish your kingdom forever. One of your descendants is going to be the king forever. And there's a new 
covenant. The covenant is, David, you lead. I am going to be in charge of developing through your descendants the one who will bring redemption. And David does an, does an okay job as a king. His son Solomon is half and half. And after Solomon, it's not even half and half anymore. King after king is bad after bad after bad. Why? Because we're messed up people live, who live in a messed up world in need of redemption. And because these kings are all messed up, they start leading the people to do wrong. And it says that they, they did what was right in their own eyes instead of doing what is right according to God's covenants and his plans. They did what was right in their own eyes. And so the, 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 uh, the people of God wind up being divided. There's a northern section and a southern section. And before long, because of their disobedience, God allows the northern section to be taken into exile. To, wait, taken into exile to Assyria. To Assyria. And before long after that, he allows the southern half, or it's not really half, but the southern section to be taken into exile in Babylon. And that is the time of the prophets. All of those prophecy books that you have next in your Bible that basically take us from here through the rest of the Old Testament. All of those books happen either just before the people are messing up so bad they get taken into exile or they happen during exile the prophets are speaking to the people. And then the people finally get to come back and start to rebuild the wall and the temple. That's the Old Testament. That's the story. God has promised redemption. And he, is going to, he promised it through a specific person. In Genesis 3, it said he one person, one human being would stomp the head of Satan. In David, it said, one of your descendants will sit on the throne forever. It's a story that's pointing us to Jesus from the very beginning. I took you from the fall all the way through the prophets. Now, I want, to, I want to show you uh, within the section that we call the prophets, look at Jeremiah 31. We've had three covenants. In the story, in the great redemptive story, there are three covenants. Abram, I'm going to create in you a nation. They're going to be my people. Moses, here are the rules and regulations of how my people are to relate to me and to each other. I'll be your God, you be my people. David, I am going to make from you the one true king who will sit on the throne forever. Three covenants pointing to one who is to come. Now look in Jeremiah 31. We're going to start at verse 31. Now we're in the time of the prophets. And Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant. See that? We've had three covenants so far, but there will be a time when there will be a new covenant. 
with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Those are just the two. Remember I said there's a north and a south. That's just the, the north and the south. He's saying the people of God. I'm going to make a new covenant with the people of God. Verse 32. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. They broke it. They committed adultery by running after other gods. I remained the faithful husband. They broke it. Verse 33 but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Not on a stone tablet on, that is external to them that they have to read and hear and obey. But I'm going to do something different. I'm going to put the law within them. There's no way they fully understood that, but today we understand that that is the Holy Spirit who lives within us, guiding us, telling us how to live our lives, showing us what God wants and expects and desires. And it happens within the believers. This is a whole new kind of covenant that Jeremiah saw before he could fully, uh, certainly before he could fully understand it. Starting over in 33 now, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, not on stone tablets, but I'm going to write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Now look at this new covenant. This new covenant includes an indwelling spirit that directs us. It includes forgiveness of sin. It includes knowing now that's big stuff right there. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor or each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. The word know here is not to understand something intellectually. I know that 2 plus 2 is 4. I know uh, that Trump is the president. I don't know. Mr. Trump. It's not facts. It is a, a, a real relationship. The word no in the Hebrew especially refers to an intimacy, a close understanding of one another. I know you. There is a, there's a connection of, of persons. So that's the power of this new covenant that will come someday. You'll be forgiven. There will be a spirit who guides instead of an external law. And you will know him. Why is that so important? Go all the way back to the beginning of the redemptive story. What happened in Genesis after Adam and Eve 
ate from the, the, the one tree they weren't supposed to eat from. They fell. What happened then? God says, here are the punishments. And then what? He no longer walks with them. They're cast out of the garden, right? There is even a heavenly being who is placed at the garden's entrance with a sword, a sword of fire to keep them away. You no longer have access to the garden. Why? Because in the garden, there's the tree of life. They can't get to the tree of life anymore because they must die. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. They gave up their opportunity to live forever when they chose sin. So they can't get back to the garden, which means they can no longer have a personal interaction with God. From that moment on, man is separated from God and has been ever since. Sin always separates man from God because God is holy and we are not. But here is a new covenant, a promise that there will be a way that we can be redeemed, that we can be forgiven, filled with the Holy Spirit, and we can walk with God again to know him. This covenant is an incredible promise, and we see its fulfillment in the Gospels. We've walked through the Old Testament, and the next thing we find is the New Testament opening with the Gospels, telling the story of the one that the Old Testament has been pointing to all along. It, 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 it got us ready to hear the good story, the good news. By the way, that's, that's what the word gospel means, good news. We get to the Gospels that tell the good news that Messiah has finally come. The one we've been looking for has come. The one promised to David, who will be the king forever, he has come. The one promised uh, to, really all the way back to Abram, that from Abram's nation there would be redemption. Now we see it happening in Jesus. And Jesus brings with him this new covenant, a new opportunity to be made right with God again. And we see that story played out in the Gospels as we see him die on the cross, come back to life to bring redemption. Remember Genesis 3 and 15? He's going to, he's going to bruise your head and you're going to bruise his heel very well, if you put those two as one action, it very well could depict one event, not two. The stomping of the head bruises the heel and bruises the head at the same moment. When Jesus brings victory over the enemy, yes, he suffered. He suffered terribly, but the enemy is defeated. And we get that powerful story of redemption through the Gospels. And then in the book of Acts, we get to hear the good news that the Holy Spirit now does indwell believers. That this new covenant that, Jer that Jeremiah saw is coming to, to fruition as the, the Holy Spirit of God now dwells within and has written God's law on our hearts Instead of an external list of rules and regulations, now he lives within to guide. We see that in Acts, and we see the result of that throughout the book of Acts as the Holy Spirit now empowers believers to take that good news that we got in the, in the Gospels, to take that good news through the rest of the world, 
That is the book of Acts. It is the Holy Spirit empowering disciples to tell the good news. And as that goes, as that goes through the known world, churches are planted. And then those who planted those churches write letters to those churches. And those are the, the letters of the New Testament all the way to the Revelation. Remember, Revelation is written to seven churches. It is one of those letters that was written to the churches that were established when the Holy Spirit empowered disciples to tell the good news. And in the book of Revelation, we find out that there will be a day when Jesus comes back as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. The King who reigns forever that was promised to David. The whole story is God's redemption. In the end that we find in Revelation that those of us who trust and believe in this king get to go and be with him forever. And when we're there, one of the things we find in that eternal dwelling place is the tree of life. That very thing that we could no longer get to after the fall we now have access to forever and ever. There is eternal life, redemption. The entire Bible is the story of God's redemptive plan. It is the story of redeeming humanity for his glory. Summed up for us is, that, is, is the, the major part of what makes the redemptive plan work. All of the Old Testament is pointing to the time Jesus comes to die for us. And after he comes and dies for us, the rest of the New Testament is telling us the results of that. So that time is the most important part of the redemptive plan. So I want to finish our time by looking at a summary of when Jesus came and the power that's there. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll be done in just a few minutes. Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 10. The pivotal time in God's plan, the time that changed everything, the fulfillment of the covenant that Jeremiah saw coming, and the establishment of God's salvation and his redemptive plan is summed up for us in Hebrews 2, starting at verse 10. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. In other words, God. Everything exists because he said they exist and everything exists for him, right? Starting again, verse 10. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, the redemptive plan, he's, he, now we are no longer sinners but sons, children of God. He's bringing us to glory as described for us in the book of Revelation. We get to live with him forever. That's glory. So in, in verse 10, him uh, for whom and by whom all things exist, this is God, in working out his redemptive plan, in, in the way it's worded here, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, who is the founder of our salvation? Jesus. It says that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
Now you say, how is Jesus not perfect? How can he be made perfect? When it says he's made perfect, it doesn't mean that he was once sinful. It means that when he came, he was a human baby. And in order to be the perfect lamb of God, he had to be tempted. He had to suffer. It is through that temptation and that suffering that he is perfected and is then ready to be the sacrificial lamb of God on Calvary. So God, who holds everything, who has everything, knows that his redemptive plan of bringing sons to glory is so important that he perfects the founder of that very salvation through suffering. He allows his son to be tempted and suffer as a poor human first and then as a dying human being tortured. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies... That's Jesus, the one who does the work of sanctifying. To sanctify something is to make it holy, to clean it up. He sanctifies us. So for he who sanctifies, that's Jesus. Those who are sanctified, that's us. All have one source. God is at the very heart of the whole story. The one who sanctifies has come. We now are the sanctified because God had a plan. The entire thing is his redemptive plan. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus now calls us siblings. Did you ever notice that before Jesus dies on the cross, he never calls his disciples brothers? He never refers to them with that word. He calls them disciples. He calls them friends. But he never calls them brothers until after he dies on the cross, he comes back to life. The women see him at the tomb and he says, go tell my brethren. It's the first time he refers to them in that way. Because until he died for them, they could not be adopted into God's family. They could not be Jesus' brothers. But now... We are his siblings. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And then it quotes things that Jesus might say, and these, these, uh, these quotes are from the Psalms, but they are quotes that Jesus might say, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. Imagine Jesus had to put his trust in God the Father while he was here. That was part of that perfecting process toward his, his being the lamb. He had to trust in God the Father. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. He recognizes that God has been the one working through all this process from the beginning to the end. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. We did not have the same nature as Jesus. We're flesh and blood. He, never, he was not. God the Son was not. Until he partook of our nature. He put on flesh and blood. 
And so, therefore, verse 14 again, therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He had to take on flesh and blood so he could die. Why did he have to die? So he could kill the guy who had power over death. He had to die so that he was in the realm of death so he could come back to life and defeat the enemy of life, the one who has power over death, which is the Satan. Verse 15, when he did all that, to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Man has always feared death. Now believers need not fear death anymore. We've been set free from that form of slavery. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, the first covenant that God made with man, the introduction of his redemptive plan. Jesus has now fulfilled the plan as he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to become one of us so that his death counted for us. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's been there and he understands it. He now is our high priest sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for us because he knows what it's all about. He's been through it. That's an incredible plan. And the Bible is God's redemptive plan. Man fell. God fixed it. He did it through his son. And when we accept him, we are made new creatures, completely redeemed into something new that lasts forever.